Here's my sermon in a sentence. Each of us have to decide for ourselves whether or not we believe God is still God, even in the worst seasons of our lives. Each of us, no matter how young or how mature in age, have to decide for ourselves whether or not we believe God is still God, even in the worst seasons of our lives. My title for today is God on Trial. God on Trial. I don't know how you hear that. I don't know what you think about that. I don't know if some of you, as you hear the title God on Trial, you think, ooh, that sounds irreligious or irreverent. Uh, I don't know if for some of you, because of your background, it causes the hair on your neck to kind of rise, to, to raise the question, where are we really going with this? Who are we to put God on trial. I don't know if you're okay with it. I don't know if we think God can handle it. I don't know if we can handle it, but that's our title today, God on Trial. In 2008, there was a a playwright uh, made for television that was made entitled God on Trial. Uh, It was written about prisoners who were uh, in the Auschwitz camp uh, during World War II and and while they were in the camp, these Jewish prisoners, they, they were sitting in uh, their barracks or their cabin, and, and they decide to put God on trial. They decide that, that God needs to answer for what's going on, that God has somehow allowed uh, the Nazis to commit genocide upon them, and, and they believe that God has broken his covenant, that God has violated what he communicated he would do for his people. So they put God on trial. Here are the charges that God has broken his covenant. And they work throughout the case and and they try to work through it and resolve it. And I would encourage you to watch it. There is quite a bit of cursing in it, but uh, I would encourage you to watch it uh, because it's an interesting dialogue and discussion. God on trial. You see, I believe as, as we look at this familiar book of Job that For many of us, we don't think about maybe that's what's happening in the book of Job, but I believe as you read the book of Job, I believe that's really the heart of what's going on in the book of Job, that God is on trial. Many of us, when we read the book of Job, we're very familiar with it because we're very familiar with human suffering. We're familiar with pain and heartache and tribulation and trial, and and in the midst of all of that, we find ourselves gravitating towards that book named after Job. Job, the Bible says, is a great man. He is a a, a righteous man. He's an upright man. He's a community activist, so to speak. He is a a worshiper. He's a man who loves his wife. He loves his family. Uh, He's committed uh, to not only his community and his children, but committed even to his servants. And the Bible says in Job chapter 1 that one day everything changed in Job's life. One day, Job wakes up, and as he wakes up, he, he gets a report after report, gets a report. Man, some people have come in, and they've invaded your property, and they've, they've taken them, and man, it's all gone. I'm the only one left to give the report. He gets another report that, man, some people have come in, and they, they've taken some more of your property, and I'm the only one left to give the report. He gets another report that, man, a windstorm has come and knocked down the house and all your children are in, and all your children are gone, and I'm the only one to give the report. He gets another report. Man, you've lost some more of your property. I'm the only one to get the report. And as we read the book of Job, often we take comfort in the book because like, man, I feel that way. I I think that way. I wrestle that way. 
As we look at that book of Job, I mean, it's great to see Job. Job chapter 1, he's like, man, naked, I came into the world, naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Job chapter 2, his wife says, curse God and die. And Job's like, woman, how are we going to accept good from God and not accept bad from God? Job is in a great place. He has a great disposition. He is willing to worship and he's willing to celebrate God. And I know that as we read that book, there are a whole lot of great lessons that we learn about suffering. I mean, as we read the book of Job, we discover that this basic lesson that, that suffering is no respecter of persons. Suffering doesn't care about your address. It doesn't care about your age. It doesn't care whether you go to church or not. Suffering could care less about whether you're committed to Mission Peoria or any other mission. Suffering is no respecter of persons. It just shows up as an uninvited guest and it sits longer than you want it to sit. Suffering can show up at anybody's house. That's what we learn from the book of Job, that it's not a respecter of persons. As we continue to just look at the book of Job and, and read throughout that book of Job, we realize that suffering is multifaceted, that we suffer in a variety of ways, that, that none of us can say, well, because you're not suffering the way I'm suffering, then you're not really suffering. No, we suffer in a variety of ways. We suffer as a result of abuse, and we suffer as a result of loss of jobs, and we suffer as a result of relational conflict, and, and we suffer as a result of sickness in our body, and, and we deal with so many other issues in life that bring trial and tribulation and trouble, and it causes suffering for us. It's multifaceted. It's, it's diverse. There's, there's no way to say, man, I've seen all of the different shades of suffering because we never know what will happen from day to day. Since we look at the book of Job, the book of Job reminds us that suffering is a mystery. I know some of us are very spiritual and very mature, and we have all the answers. But suffering really is a mystery. I mean, when you think about suffering, who, who do you blame? Who do you charge for suffering. If God is sovereign, God is in control, he reigns and he rules, and God is ultimately responsible. So will we be justified to blame God or attack God or be angry with God because God is the one in charge? Well, some of us say, no, I don't want to blame God. I want to blame Satan because he is the enemy. He is the accuser, and he is the one that is constantly attacking the brethren. Yeah, but Satan does have to get permission, doesn't he? Satan can't do anything that he wants to do without God giving a stamp of approval. God has to allow him to act. So Satan submits to the all-powerful God. So we have to wrestle with man. Do we get angry with Satan or do we get angry with God? And then we have to acknowledge that sin is in the world because of Adam's sin. So because of Adam and, and Eve's sin, then sin is in the world and now humanity is messed up. Humanity is sick. The wickedness of humanity is on display day after day. That's why creation groans, longing for redemption, Romans chapter 8. Because everything is messed up, and there's going to be a day when God's going to make everything right again, but we're not in that day. So who do we blame? Who do we get frustrated with? Do we get frustrated with God? Do we get frustrated with, with Satan? Do we get frustrated with Adam and Eve and say, I can't wait to see Adam and Eve when I get to glory. I mean, where do we, it's a mystery. And we are arrogant at any moment in time to be able to say, I know who to blame. Or I know who's responsible. It's a mystery. We don't have a clue. See, the book of Job, as we look at this book of Job, it reminds us, even though it's uncomfortable, that our suffering is often not eased by our faith. You read the book of Job, and, and I love it. 
Uh, I love Job 1 and I love Job 2, but I love Job 3. If you haven't read the book of Job, read Job chapter 3. Job, Job chapter 1, the Lord give, the Lord take it away. Bless me in the name of the Lord. Job chapter 2, God gives good things. How can we not accept bad things from him? It's like, man, I love this guy. I want to live like that. Read Job chapter 3. I cursed the day I was born. Why did God allow me to be born? And he goes into this dialogue, this, this fit of rage about even God allowing him to be born, knowing that this day was going to come when he would experience all of this loss. We see the humanity of Job on display, but Job's still holding on to his faith in everything. Job never goes against the word of God in everything. He doesn't charge God with wrong. He's still holding on to his faith. But he's still dealing with suffering. And sometimes we operate as though because you have faith, then suffering doesn't hurt. It still hurts. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But suffering still hurts. When disease enters your body, it still hurts. When you experience loss, it still hurts hurts. My faith doesn't take the sting out of suffering. My faith may anchor me in my suffering, but it doesn't take away the pain. We learn so much from the book of Job because as we look at it, it it teaches us those simple lessons. Like all of us are uncomfortable with suffering. So some of you are uncomfortable that I'm preaching about it right now. and Some of you are uncomfortable by some of the statements that I've made. Suffering makes us uncomfortable. That was Job's friend's problem. They were uncomfortable because of his suffering. And they did good initially. Job chapter 2, they came and they sat. They saw his suffering is too great for words, so they didn't say anything. They just sat and they, they, they wept with him. They, they tore their clothes and they, they grieved with him. They identified with him. And they were okay until they heard Job start to express how he felt. And then once they heard him start to express how he felt, then they felt they need to speak up to try to solve the mystery of suffering. And they did a poor job. They were trying to fix Job. They were trying to alleviate the pain for Job. And I admire what they were trying to do. But Job says, Job chapter 16, they are horrible comforters. And sometimes when you're dealing with suffering, you realize people want the best for you. They love you. They're concerned about you. They're just horrible comforters. They say dumb stuff. And you look at them and you understand they mean well. They really are concerned. They really are committed. They're just trying to speak about things they don't understand themselves. We learn that all of us become uncomfortable in the midst of suffering because it reminds us we're all vulnerable. So it's difficult sometimes just to sit with people in their pain because we like to be happy all the time. But the reality is that we're not happy all the time. Sometimes we deal with grief and sometimes we deal with sorrow. So we read Job. And you're like, man, this is a book about suffering. And that's why Job raised all his questions about suffering. And, and, and that's why his friends are talking to him about why God allows suffering, why God allows good people to suffer, and, and, and trying to answer all of those questions. But the more I've been reading the book of Job over these last few months, I've, I've struggled with whether that's it. Is the book just about 
the why of suffering? And as I've been reading the book of Job over these last few months, I've come to wrestle with, I don't think the book is just about the why of suffering. I believe the book is about the why of worship. Follow with me if you don't mind so I can anchor it in Scripture. We get the first hint, Job chapter 1. If you have a smartphone or a tablet or just a good old-fashioned Bible, you can look at Job chapter 1. See, Job, like us, has no idea about the conversation between God and Satan. God didn't send him an email to say, Job, I want to let you know on this coming day your world is going to fall apart. And we don't get those emails. We don't get forewarnings about trials and calamity coming into our lives. So Job had no idea, but look at Job chapter 1 and the dialogue that takes place. God offers up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And so he's like, yeah, I considered him, but you, you, I mean, you, you got your hands all around him. I mean, you're protecting everything that he has. You're, you're protecting everything that he does. I mean, I've considered him, but I figured there's no way I could touch him. And God says, oh, you can, you can touch him. But here's the accusation from Satan. God, if you let me take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. That's the charge. If you let me take away the stuff that you've given him, the blessings that you've supplied him, that he will turn his back on you and curse you to your face. He will turn away from you, God, and no longer worship you as the true and living God. Not just in chapter 1, Job chapter 2. After he's done all of this in one day, he comes back before God, same conversation. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, but you won't let me attack his body. Okay, you can attack his body. Satan says, here are the charges. If you let me attack his body, he will curse you to your face. He will turn his back on you and no longer worship you as God. Hear the charge that Satan is making in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 because he doesn't speak for the rest of the book. Here is the charge. God, you are not worthy to be worshipped. The only reason that Job and humanity worships you is because you bribed them. You bless them with stuff. And because you bless them with stuff, then they lift up holy hands. Because you bless them with stuff, then they give offerings to you. But if you stop blessing them with stuff, they will decide that you are not worthy in and of yourself of their worship. The charge that Satan lays out in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 is that Job and humanity will only worship God if God gives stuff to us. And think about it in our own experience. Isn't that when we struggle the most? I mean, can we just be honest? When you're going through, isn't it difficult to lift your hands? When you're going through trials and suffering, isn't it hard sometimes to get a prayer off to God? When you're dealing with crisis in your life, sometimes you don't want to be with the saints in small group. You don't want them to call. You don't want them to stop by. Oftentimes, when we're dealing with suffering and heartache and pain, we pull back from God. 
We, we stop lifting hands. We stop praying. We stop connecting. We don't want to read the word because we feel like God has let us down. So what happens often in our practical experience is that we turn our backs on God and we say, God, I'll start back worshiping when you bless me again. So God, I'll, I'll start back singing when I get that job. But I, I can't sing without the job. And I'll start back singing when my child gets healed, but I, I can't sing until they get healed. And I'll, I'll start back lifting my hands and offering prayers to you on a consistent basis when my spouse comes back home because I un- don't understand why they left me in the first place. But I'll start back when you fix everything. That's the charge that's made in the book of Job, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. God is on trial. Satan says, you are not worthy. So let's see what Job and humanity decides. So as you read the book, Job chapter 3 through 37, there's this dialogue about suffering. And in the midst of the dialogue, we get caught up in it. We're like, oh man, this is crazy. Are we ever going to get an answer about the why of suffering? And in the midst of the dialogue, we don't have any resolve. God doesn't say anything, Job 3 through Job 37. And then finally, God decides to intervene. Job has been begging all along, God, will you just say something? God, can I just know that you're listening to me? Can I know that you care? Can I just know that you're concerned? God, God, are you even paying attention to what's going on? That's Job's cry. And God says nothing until Job chapter 38. And when God begins to speak, it's amazing that God doesn't address Job's accusations. He doesn't address Job's questions nor the questions of his friends. God doesn't give an answer as to suffering. God doesn't explain why he allowed Job to lose all of his property and why he allowed his servants to be destroyed and some taken. He doesn't explain why he allowed his children to die on that day. God doesn't explain why he allowed sickness to enter Job's body. God never addresses any of that. What God does for Job is what he does for us is he provides a defense to the real charges that Satan offered. So listen to what God says to Job. Job 38, forgive me, I have the message translation. My wife calls it the heathen Bible. So forgive me for bringing the heathen translation to church, but that's what I have. Job 38, God says, and now finally God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job, up on your feet, stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundations poured, and who set the cornerstone? While the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise, and who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen, so it couldn't run loose. 
and said, stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And have you ever ordered morning? Get up. Told Don, get to work. So you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches. As the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the colors and shapes, the cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked. They're caught in the very act. Verse 19, do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives so you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. You've known them all your life, grown up in the same neighborhood with them. God begins to raise questions of Job. Not just Job chapter 38, but Job 39. Do you know the month when mountain goats give birth? Have you ever watched a doe bear her fawn? Do you know how many months she is pregnant? Do you know the season of her delivery when she crouches down and drops her offspring? Her young ones flourish and are soon on their own. They leave and don't come back. Who do you think set the wild donkey free? Open the corral gates and let him go. I gave him the whole wilderness to roam in, the rolling plains and wide open places. He laughs at his city cousins who are harnessed and harried. He's oblivious to the cries of teamsters. He grazes freely through the hills, nibbling anything that's green, and God goes on and on. And finally, in, in Job chapter 40, God confronts Job. He says, now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? And Job answers, I'm speechless. In all words, fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. What does God do for Job and what does God do for us in the midst of suffering with all of our questions, with with all of our anger and frustration? What does God do for him? God puts his greatness on display. God says, I won't give you answers as to why I allowed sickness. I won't give you answers as to why I allowed you to lose your job. I won't give you answers as to why your children have gone crazy. I won't give you answers. But here's what I'll do. I'll remind you of my greatness. I'll remind you of my power. I'll remind you of my creative ability. I'll remind you that I am in charge. I'll remind you that I am the sovereign God who reigns and rules with all authority in heaven and on earth. I'll remind you of who I am. And Job is humbled by the greatness of God. Humbled and in awe as he gets a glimpse of God's greatness. And isn't that what we need most in the midst of our suffering? Isn't what we need most in the midst of our suffering is not answers, but we need a glimpse of the greatness of our God. To be reminded that he is an all-powerful God who is very much in control. And I thought God would stop there. Because it seems like the case should be dismissed at this point. But God continues, and he raises more questions, and he raises more questions, and he raises more questions. And then finally, in Job chapter 42, Job gives an answer. Because as you read the rest of Job 40 and 41, the Bible again and again says that God speaks to Job from the whirlwind. Job 42, Job answered God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. 
Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never again live on crust of hearsay and crumbs of rumors. Job is humbled by the greatness of God. But Job is also humbled by the goodness of God. Don't miss it. Because in the midst of our experience of suffering and trial and heartache and pain, sometimes we can miss the goodness of God. As I read, I'm like, man, how, how is this demonstrating the goodness of God? But, but look at what happens. Job cries out. He raises his questions like, God, can I, can I get an audience with you? That's his cry. God is so good that God shows that he cares for us. What do you mean God shows that he cares? God shows that he cares for us and he cares for Job because God listened. Don't underestimate that. The very fact that God responded was to let Job know you are not alone. I hear you. I hear your cry. I see your pain. I see your heartache. And I want you to know that even though everything is going on that's going on in your life, I care about you. The goodness of God is seen in the fact that God still cares. He shows in very small ways. I'm listening. I'm concerned. Not only does he care, but he comes to us. He shows up in the whirlwind to interact with Job. He shows up in the whirlwind to not only say, I care, but I want to come where you are and let you know that I am with you. That you're not suffering alone, Job. I am with you. I am with you. I'm standing beside you. I'm dealing with the heartache and pain just like you're dealing with it, Job. Every time you cry, Job, I cry, Job, because I am your daddy and I love you. And what breaks your heart breaks my heart. God says, I come close to show you I am with you. And isn't that what we need most in the midst of our suffering? Just a reminder that God still cares. Just the reminder that God is willing to come close and just be with us. If you won't change it, then just hold me, Daddy. If you won't stop it, then just wipe the tears from my eyes, Daddy. Just to know that you're with me. Even in the midst of my heartache, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering, just knowing that Daddy is with me somehow makes it better. So each of us have to decide, is that enough? Is the greatness of God and the goodness of God enough? If God doesn't change anything in your life, if he doesn't fix it the way you want him to fix it, if he doesn't heal as you want him to heal, and I do believe that he is a healer, but if he chooses not to heal, if he chooses not to work in the way that you want him to work on your job and in your family, is his greatness and his goodness enough? 
And if it is, then each of us have to decide, God, even though you won't change anything, I will worship you. And I don't just mean Sunday morning worship. I mean presenting my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, because it's the least I can do. Each of us have to decide for ourselves. Nobody can force it on you. Nobody can talk you into it. And nobody can move you into it. It is a choice made in our minds and our hearts to say God is still worthy. He's still worthy of my praise. He's still worthy of my worship. And because he's worthy, then I will worship him. And people around you will wonder, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Because even though things haven't changed, God is still great. And God is still good. And because he's still great and he's still good, then I make the choice to worship him. Is there anybody this morning that's been going through some tough times, but this morning you just want to make the choice to worship him? I mean, life has been difficult. You've been going through a tough patch, but you've resolved in your heart and in your mind, God is still worthy of my worship. And if he is, don't wait. Begin to just worship him and surrender to him and say, God, I bow before you. I'm, I'm broken and I'm bruised, but I bow before you. My heart hurts, but you are worthy. You are worthy, God. You are great and you are awesome. You are amazing. You are a good daddy. And because you are a good daddy, we surrender to you. And we give you our praise. We give you our glory, and we give you the honor. So, Daddy, we pray today that you would help us to resolve in our hearts that you are still great, and you are still good. And because you are great and because you are good, if nothing changes in our lives, we will continue to worship you. So receive our worship this morning. Receive our worship this morning. Receive our worship this morning. Hear our prayer.